Anna. So today's reading is going to be from Matthew chapter 20, verses 17 to 28. And as I read it, I'd like to invite us all to stand as we read together. Now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. On the way, he took the twelve aside and said to them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death, and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons, and kneeling down, asked a favour of him. What is it you want? he asked. And she said, Grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? And we can, they answered. So Jesus said to them, You will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them? Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Well, what a passage, hey? What a pleasure to open up this text and just spend some time walking through it as a church community. If you've not met me before, my name's Alex. I'm the pastor here at New Life Brisbane. But what I, what I do, I couldn't do alone. We've got an amazing team, Aaron, Lauren, Jamie, and also, too, just the myriad of people who bandy together and use their very lives in service uh, to make sure that what we do here actually takes place. Uh, as a case in point, this afternoon we've got baptisms, which is awesome. How awesome that we have got baptisms, this symbol of new life and God meeting people and, in short, encountering people where they're at. That's what we're celebrating this afternoon. But it wouldn't take place if we didn't have wonderful people who volunteered their time to ensure that the pool out on the corner of Albert Street and Anne is not just being filled up but is monitored so that way it's safe and we can actually do what we need to do. So if you see uh, two young men, Grant and Blank Reinbot, I probably butchered the pronunciation of their last name, but if you see them, uh, they'll be out there. Just thank them for what they've done because this literally couldn't happen without them. But that signals the major point, which is this. We're doing baptisms this afternoon. And like baptisms is this beautiful symbol of new life that people represent they're dying to their old self and their old ways of life and they're rising again to new life, symbolizing they're now becoming alive to Jesus because of what he's done. And three people are going to undergo the waters of baptism this afternoon, declaring and dedicating themselves to this very beautiful thing that Jesus has done in their life. And what has Jesus done in their life? And the answer is he's encountered them. He's met them where they're at, And he's taken them on a journey. 
so that now they become the kind of people who say, yeah, I want to stand before a congregation, before a public, and declare with my mouth, believe in my heart that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so it's going to be a really awesome time as part of the service. And so we're going to finish up hopefully around five-ish this afternoon, which you might say sounds early. It is. But that's because as part of the service, we're going to go out those back doors and the whole church community is going to gather around that pool, which is very cold, by the way. And we're going to celebrate what God's done, is doing, and will do in the lives of these three people and in the life of this community. Does that sound okay? Awesome. A couple of people half clapped. I can just feel you're on the edge of your seat with that clap, you know, and it's fine. You're allowed to clap in church. That's totally okay. But we're in the middle of a series called Encountering Jesus. And we as a church, particularly at a leadership level, we just had this sense in our heart that, man, we just need to meditate on the Gospels of Jesus and step into the shoes of those who walked first century Israel and met this guy face to face. Because in meeting Jesus face to face, you learn something about him that you can't if you just read about him from afar. See, ideas you can think about. Philosophy you can contemplate. Words about someone you can kind of wrestle with intellectually. But if a person's standing right before you, You've got to interact with them. You've got to wrestle with them face to face. And if you let them, depending on who they are, whether they're real and how good they are, you've got to let them encounter you. And we as a church just wanted to sort of inculcate this habit within us that we come to church not to learn lessons, although we do sometimes do that. We come to church not just to sing songs, although we do sometimes do that. We come to church to encounter the living God, like to walk away changed, to sit and worship and not just feel like we're singing songs to the roof, but actually that there's a God by his spirit who's here with us and he could move amongst us if we would just let him. That encountering Jesus wouldn't just be a sermon series we walk through for six weeks, it would actually be a lifestyle that we inhabit when we come to sit in these pews. And so my invitation for us as we hear the scriptures taught this afternoon is this, don't, don't let this be a lesson that you sort of make you feel encouraged by. What's the invitation God's got for each of us right here, right now? How does he want to encounter us? And with that sort of as our motivating factor, I just want to pray one more time. Is that okay? Let me pray. Father, thank you so much that we're not just talking about you like you're not in the room. You're right here with us. You're amongst us. You're beside us. You, by your spirit, are in us. And so whatever you want to do here, not just through the preaching of the word, but through the singing of praise and through the baptism of your servants. We just ask, Lord, would you encounter us this afternoon? And Father, would we just become unselfconscious in the way that we interact with you by your spirit? If we want to raise our hands in worship, would you free us to do it? If we want to get on our knees in repentance, would you free us to do it? If we want to sing out as the words preached and your truth is declared and we realize that it's life-changing, would you help us to do it? We want to encounter you, God. We want to become more like your son, For it's in his name that we pray. And all God's people said? Awesome. Hey, um, something that I'm realizing as I get older is that I'm just not as cool as I once was. Does anyone relate to this? (laughs) Yeah. Anyone over 30? Awesome. Great. And those under 30, just like teach us. We're open. We are humble. It's fine. But I'm not as cool as I once was. And this became apparent to me when on Wednesday night we had our small group over. And everyone in our small group was using like slang words. And can I just get a shout-out from Rochdale South uh, Small Group? Three people, right on. Come on. There they are. Awesome. The rest of you, we'll talk on Wednesday night about that. But everyone was using slang, and I was like, what is this word? And so someone said, they said the word slaps. That slaps. Has anyone heard this? Just (laughs) hands up if you've heard this word. 
Yep, younger generations, beautiful. Just like a little cross-section survey there. That slaps, okay, just for us in the room. I looked up like a... When I realized that this is like going to increasingly be an experience in my life, I started to Google, hey, is there like a, an online repository of slang words, just for those that are, of us that are getting older? And I found one. It's called familyeducation.com. <laughs> and they list all these wonderful words. Super, super helpful. So slaps, it's just like is another word, it's like a positive word. So we're eating brownies or something at the time, and they're like, oh, that slaps. And what they meant was, this is awesome. This is a, a good brownie. Really helpful, right? And so, uh, another word that came to mind was the word extra. Does anyone use the word extra? Yeah, great. Awesome. Extra is like when someone does something that's like a little bit over the top. And so like, you know, a 9 out of 10 would be good for like, I don't know, let's just pretend you're making dinner. And a 9 out of 10 would be fine for a small group. But someone goes like an 11 out of 10. Kind of like a Toby Richards. They do handmade pasta. They bring it to small group. And everyone basks at the wedding supper of the lamb. And he's made pasta. He's made it handmade. It's a bit extra. Another word, another word, although if Toby's in my small group, I would totally, that would be awesome. Um, another word that I looked up, and this one just came to me, it's called yeet. Um, okay, a couple of yeet users in the room, not me, but for those of us who need this definition, here's a definition. Yeet, Y-double-E-T, just in case you want to text it to your friends. It can be a standalone expression of excitement. For example, yeet, it's the weekend. Or it could be a verb that usually refers to throwing something with force. So familyeducation.com, this is the example they gave. It says, if this latte has foam, I'm going to yeet it in the trash. (laughs) What family education doesn't know is that all lattes should have foam. Can I get a shout-out from the baristas in the room? But there is one word that I think is quite symptomatic and characteristic and typical of our culture, and it's Goat. Has anyone heard the word goat before? Okay. Can those who know what goat stands for, in unison, say it out? Three, two, one. Greatest of all time. Greatest of all time. Greatest of all time. And so we, use, we say things like, I want, to be the, I want to be the goat. I remember seeing this word, I was like, what does this even mean? But it's quite characteristic of our culture in a sense, right? Like, there's people in our culture... Particularly if, no, I won't single out a demographic, all of us. We want to be the goat. And this becomes clear to me. We want to be the greatest of all time. It doesn't matter what category we're speaking in, by the way. But this becomes clear to me when I think of, um, I remember reading this article recently about the most wanted job from teenagers. It was around 2014, so clearly we've progressed from then. It's okay. But here's what it was. A YouTube person. Someone who's famous on YouTube. And the only way you can make YouTube your job is if you've got millions of followers, people who watch you. In other words, you become this sort of internet celebrity. And it's sort of characteristic of a demographic that the way in which they want to seek greatness and be the greatest of all time is through YouTube. But all of us want to be great in in a myriad of categories. And actually, those of us who are like a little bit older, we might say, no, we don't want to be the greatest of all time, but we're probably just really good at hiding it. We think of more mature ways to demonstrate our greatness. I think one of the ways that a lot of Aussies, particularly around the middle, not the middle age, but um, I don't want to split these demographics too, too, too quickly, but like if you're sort of a young adult, what's the way you feel that you need to be great if, if you're around that age demographic? And you know the way it is, you know the answer to this question by the kind of conversation topics you have. Oh, house prices are going up. Oh, the rental market sucks. Oh, interest rates, they are woeful. 
And what does it mean to be great if you're a young adult, under the age of 30? Own a home. Or maybe you've ticked that off. What's the next stage of your ability to demonstrate greatness? It probably looks like having kids and having schools lined up and having all these things ticked off like ducks in a row so you can demonstrate your greatness. What if you're a little bit older? When you get older, you sort of, you know, around the age of 50, you start to have what they call a midlife crisis. And then you sort of challenge the definition of greatness that you received from a younger age and you start to think, well, actually, is there a more meaningful way to have greatness? And people around this age, they start talking about things like legacy. I want to leave a good legacy. Legacy for my kids. A legacy for my family. Now, the fascinating thing about legacy is actually it's a very Roman idea. Because the Romans, they didn't believe in life after death in the same way that Jews and Christians did. And so they had to start asking the question, well, I need to do in this life what will last beyond me, have a family, raise money, and be an honourable person. Why? Because death is the end. And so something needs to exceed past my life if it's not going to be me. Christians don't live that way. But that's the word legacy. You start talking about legacy, you want to be great. We all seek Greatness. Greatness is actually the fuel which fans the flame of our modern culture. And here's the question that this text asks for us today. What does greatness look like? What does it look like? How do we get it? Where does it come from and what does it look like? And I've got one big idea from Matthew 20, verses 17 to 28. And it comes from this context, that the disciples asked Jesus looking for greatness. There's a few things you need to understand about this passage before we jump into it. The context is simply this. In the narrative, Jesus has lived his life, started his ministry, and he's demonstrated his power. And there's these rumors going around, particularly as he walked around ancient Israel, these rumors going around that there's something more to this man than meets the eye, that perhaps this is the one we've long waited for, the chosen one, the Messiah, that if it was just to rip open his shirt, rather than seeing an S for Superman, you'd see M for Messiah, just like beaming through. He demonstrated his power. He's got this authority when he teaches. And as he travels, you see him travel literally through Judea, Samaria, all across the Mediterranean basin on the west side. But there's this point in each of the Gospels, the first three in particular, Matthew, Mark, Luke. And it says something along the lines of, Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. Now, when the Gospel writers narrate this, what they're signaling is this shift in the narrative from Jesus demonstrating his kingship to now moving towards his throne. Because Jerusalem is where the temple is, it's where uh, politics had happened in the past for God's people, and all of it led to this sort of moment where the air was electric, the tension was thick, and Jesus is moving towards his throne, the place where God would come back and restore his kingship, usher in the Messiah and bring in the reign of his rule and goodness. That's what the, the moment felt like, which is why it says when he went to Jerusalem, he pulled his 12 aside, it's a bit of a, bit of a huddle electric air, tension in the room, and he's with his 12. And he starts telling them. And each of the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all narrate this point where Jesus predicts his death. And he says, you think I'm a king? You're right. Here's what it's going to look like. Death, betrayal. I'm not going to ascend the throne through glory and honor. I'm going to ascend the throne through blood and sacrifice. I'm not going to force my relationship on you. I'm going to die on your behalf and win you persuasively with my love. But then the disciples, three things happen. An interruption, a dispute, and a response. The disciples, they pull him aside. And the brothers Zebedees, James and John, through their mum, no less, just think about this for a second, through their mum, they pull Jesus aside for a conversation. This is what they say, verses 20 to 22. 
Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of him. Pause there for a second. Just picture this. It's like you've got these disciples. They've walked with Jesus. They know him. They have a relationship with him. And then they're just like, you know what would really get Jesus over the line with this request? My mother. (laughs) So they wheel her out. She gets on her knees and she asks, Jesus, I've got a favor. Now, just picture this. Like you've probably had these conversations with someone and it might be a deep and meaningful, maybe a loved one, maybe a partner, and you're having this deep and meaningful conversation. And then they just like completely change the topic and they're like I'm pretty hungry or they might say oh what do you think like what do you think we should do for this practical need in our lives at the moment should we get the, the fridge fixed and you're just like man I was just bearing my heart to you why did you change the topic what's going on and that's a bit like what's happening in this moment Jesus gets his 12 aside he's coming to Jerusalem as king there's glory there's honor there's fame there's celebration there's this excitement and then this mum's like hey just just before this happens, just want to tick off on something real quick. What's the favor? Jesus asks. She responds, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in the kingdom. What do they want? Greatness. Now, these guys know they can't be number one. Jesus is the king. And they think that as he comes to Jerusalem, he's going to ascend his throne and usher in God's reign. And so what they're asking for really is a seat at the table. They're asking, Jesus, when you are finally ruling over Jerusalem with all the status, all the acclaim, all the wealth, all the power, all the authority, just like carve it up like a pie graph and give us a slice. Slice of that status, slice of that wealth, a slice of that acclaim. And Jesus responds, he says, you don't know what you ask for, you will indeed drink from my cup. And then he goes all cryptic, which we might have time to get into at the end, but basically he says, not in the way you ask for it. You've got a similar destiny, but it won't have a similar road. The horizon's the same, but the journey will look different. And then a dispute breaks out amongst the other ten, which is very understandable, because they, in secrecy, through their mother, have asked Jesus for status and acclaim, and they're just like, hold on, what's happening? And so when Richard before read out that phrase, the other ten became indignant. Here's what's not happening there. They're not just like, oh, well, that sucks, we missed out. They're asking, what about us? Can we too have a seat at the table? What's going to happen for us? We would like to participate in that pie graph slice of status, acclaim, and wealth. Give it to us as well. They were indignant. Why? Because they journeyed with Jesus. They knew Jesus. They were experiencing where Jesus was going towards. And then Jesus... He has these wonderful words to say, and here's the big idea. He says, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Let me just pull this into the 21st century before I give us the big idea. Think about the corporate space here in the Brisbane, city of Brisbane. Is there not a hierarchy? And is it not true that those at the top, not all the time, but generally speaking, they will establish their position and lord their position over those they lead. Go back to the first century with me. Jesus says to his disciples, hey, you know how the Gentiles, all the non-Jews, all the people that really we're not a part of, you know how when they're in positions of status, authority and wealth, they rule it over those that are subject to them? You know how that in general culture, generally speaking, there's always like this organisational chart, regardless of whether it's an actual firm or business or not whether it's a non-profit, whether it's an actual corporate structure, or whether it's just literally out on the street. There's a structure. And you know how those at the top always feel like they're at the top and they're always hurting those at the bottom? That those at the top always get more, those at the bottom always get less? 
Like, if you studied political philosophy, social work, you'll know that this is the case. And if you've just lived any ounce of time, you'll have experienced this. So when Jesus says this, he's actually appealing to their experience. You know how those, they always get what they want, and those at the bottom, they, they always get what they, they don't want. It, and he's appealing to, they're like, yes, yes, absolutely. This is what we want, Jesus. When you come as king, we would love that for ourselves. And then he leans in. And surely he spoke softly, but with such authority. And he said, not so with you. Not so with you. You know how everyone out there, that there's a ladder and they're all trying to climb because they want to get to the top so they have position, status and wealth? Not so with you. You know, not just in the corporate sector, but in the non-profit sector, that even the CEO who claims to just be serving, how they get all the acclaim, all the status, not so with you. You know, in your marriage, how one of you clearly has more strength and the other clearly doesn't, especially physically speaking, and it'd be really easy for you because of that strength and balance to sort of lord it over the person that doesn't have the same strength differential, not so with you. You know how in the church there's those people who sort of they're a part of the right cliques and because of that they sort of get to flaunt it and they have all the social status and not so with you. And Jesus is making this invitation, this command, this exhortation that his people would not be like that. That they wouldn't be those who lord it over others. That they would, in other words, have a definition of greatness which looks like service. And that's the big idea. Greatness looks like service. Greatness looks like service. Greatness looks like service. That if you're a Christian, a follower of Jesus, part of the civic reality of the kingdom of God, greatness looks like service. That even if you find yourself distracted as a follower of Jesus and you need a reminder, greatness looks like service. That the definition of greatness in the kingdom of God is not lording it over but sitting ourselves under for the flourishing of those we serve. Greatness looks like service. These are the people Jesus wants to birth. These are the people Jesus wants to habituate. These are the people Jesus wants in this world for the glory of his name and the sake of those who don't know him. And so what does this general principle teach us? Well, I think it teaches us, if we've got time, maybe two, maybe three things. The first thing it teaches us is what to do with ourselves, what to do with the self, What do we do with the human self? Because we live in what we might call a self-promotion kind of world. You might have heard phrases like, oh, the best thing you can do in life is self-actualize, self-express, self-promote. I was looking up some of these ideas this week and I stumbled across a few articles you'll see screenshotted behind me. Um, Forbes magazine, um, they wrote this article called um, 40 Ways to Self-Promote Without Being a Jerk. (laughs) And they had this like... It's literally 40 ways to self-promote, climb the ladder, narrate all the wonderful things you've done for the sake of promotion, up and up and up, how to do that without being a jerk. Helpful. Look it up. No, I'm just kidding. Um, Harvard Business Review, they wrote an article called Savvy Self-Promotion. I thought I might just read a snippet of it, Um, it, and it just makes you kind of laugh. It says this, everyone knows that success at work depends on being and being seen as both competent and likable. Ask my staff. Um, Kind of backfired. (laughs) You need people to notice your growth and accomplishments while also enjoying your company. 
What a needle to thread. But if you draw attention to the value you've created to ensure that managers and peers recognize it, you risk coming across as a shameless self-promoter. No one likes a bragger. So in this article, the author explains how to highlight your accomplishments at work without having it backfire. Harvard Business Review, really helpful. But this is just the water in which we swim. Self-actualization, self-expression, ultimately so that we might self promote, climb and climb and climb, finally find ourselves with a seat at the table with a slice of the pie of success, status and wealth. And Jesus just has a very different goal. And when you read the words of Jesus, particularly in the Gospels, you realise that you're, you're kind of reading words from a different world, which signals something, that Jesus isn't coming to us on our terms sometimes. He's coming to us on the terms of the world he represents. And when we read his words, it's kind of like a clash of kingdoms which is why his words sting to a modern, individualistic Western culture which wants to self-promote, self-actualize, and self-express, project self. And Jesus has some very stinging words. In Matthew 16, verse 24, it's the famous phrase, you would have heard this before, but it's central to following Jesus. He said it like this, that if anyone wants to be my disciple, they must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. And I, I just love these words of Jesus because on one level, they're simple, on another level, they're hard. And have you ever noticed that about some, some things in life? Things in life can be hard, not because they're complex, but because they're so simple. And in being so simple, they're so direct. And in being so direct, it actually makes you sort of need to change your life because of it. And Jesus' words are very simple. They're hard, not because they're complex, but because they're very direct. And they make you say, oh my gosh, do I need to change something in my life? And so you read this, if anyone wants to follow me, they must, and here's the first thing Jesus says. He doesn't say express yourself. He doesn't say actualize yourself. And he certainly doesn't say promote yourself. Not in his kingdom. He says that his followers will be marked by this denial of self. That to be a Christian is to be someone who says, there are things in me, things in me, which actually stop me from following Jesus. This is why the word repentance is so crucial to the experience of encountering Jesus. Because you realize that on one level, he's got something positive to offer you new life, but you can't accept it without saying no to the old one. That the boundaries which secure the yes in Jesus are actually a no to things that we find wrapped up in our flesh and blood. Things where Jesus would invite us to deny. It's not about self-promotion, it's about self-denial. And here's the crazy thing, if I was to apply this to each and every one of our lives, it'd almost be impossible because it's so broad that it makes each of us ask, well, how do I do that? But here's the beauty. It's so specific that we need to ask that question, right? It's so broad that it applies to every single one of us. Deny yourselves, Jesus would say. And then you ask, well, how? And you answer that by prayer, in community, with the Spirit. You want to know how to deny yourself? Have a close relationship with someone. You'll find out very quickly. You want to know how to deny yourself or the thing in which you need in yourself that you need to deny? Get married. Very clear. Very quick. You want to know how, to, how you need to deny yourself? Jump into a small group and do that shoulder-to-shoulder, face-to-face kind of life, which actually brings you right in front of all the things in you that, yeah, I've got some rough edges. It's broad enough that it applies to each and every one of us. Deny yourself, Jesus would say and specific enough that it actually catalyzes our change. So two quick questions. And this is something just to take to God in prayer. What is it about you that stops you from following Jesus?
Now, as I ask that question, just think about this, right? Like, you are invited to follow Jesus. But what is it about you that right now, in this season of life, that's getting in the way of that? And the second question is a bit of a follow-up. When was the last time that you said no to something in this life? Something I found out recently is, like, I love food. People will laugh and they'll be like, I'm in croissants, right? Amen. But I felt God asked me recently, hey, would you consider saying no to an almond croissant? Now, you can hear that and be like, oh, is that a bit legalistic? No, not when God brings it to me graciously by his spirit in prayer. And when he says, Alex, you've got everything at your fingertips. You never have to say no to anything. You've got cash flow in your life. You've got absolute access. And what's that teaching you? It's teaching you that you're the king, that you've got access, that things are simple. Would you consider saying no to a few creature comforts, not as an end in itself, but as a means by which to slowly and surely, rhythm after rhythm, apprentice after me and realize that actually I'm called to self-denial? It's really easy just to live our lives in the West, just not asking those kinds of questions. When was the last time you said no to something really specific, really small, just for the sake of saying yes to Jesus in really concrete ways? So what do we do with self in the kingdom of God? We deny it. We deny it for the sake of saying yes to Jesus. Second thing, what do we do with authority? What do we do with authority? Let me just define authority. You'll see it up on the screen behind me. There's sort of three words that we sort of throw around quite synonymously in our modern world when we talk about power and authority and status and acclaim. And I thought I might just define it. Power, really helpful definition that I've found is just the range of your effective will. And so if I say, look, I want, I want these pews to be gone in Albert Street, I do not have the power... <laughs> to make that happen. That power rests with the, fa- the council that oversees Albert Street Uniting Church. Don't have that power. But what power do I have? Actually, that's a great question. Let's not answer it now. But, <laughs> but it makes you ask, what is the range of my effective will? If I want something to happen, will it happen and how will it happen? That's power. When you can say, yes, it will happen and here's how it will happen and people will march to your orders, that's power. Status. Oh, sorry, authority. Authority is positional. Um, so let's put it like this. Um, I'm out in the street driving my car, and there's a person with a lollipop that says stop on it. Now, interestingly, this person, they're, they're quite um, skinny, they're, they're quite petite, and they don't have any sort of physical power about them, but they've got fluoros on and a stop sign. And I, this big, burly, rough man driving my car, lots of physical power, driving down the street. If he holds up the sign, stop, I can't go through. Why? Well, it's not because of power, it's because of authority. He's got the authority, by virtue of his position, to stop me. That's authority. Authority is often positional, and it gives you license not because you've earned the respect of others, but because they recognize and respect the institutions that conferred upon you that position. That's authority. And status. Status is just social acclaim. So when you walk into the room, everyone's like, who's this guy? You know? That's status. There's something about you. Maybe it's your charisma, something inherent to you. Or maybe it's what people think about you, something external to you. But it's given you status in this life. It might be your wealth. It might be your friendships. It might be your experiences that you've had. All those kinds of, That's status. And all of these work to giving you a place of privilege, a place of acclaim, 
and a place that most people would elevate above where they sit. And so when you find yourself in a place of authority, a place of status, a place of acclaim, of power, here are my two questions when I read the words of Jesus. Is that wrong? What do I do with it? And something I learned from these texts, is, and particularly this passage, is that Jesus doesn't teach us how to get power, but he does tell us what to do if we have it, and he tells us how to act even if we don't. What do we do with authority? What do we do with power? We live in what you might call a power-hungry world. I was at Dimmick's this week. I actually ran into Connor, and uh, I was looking at books, and I found this book. Such a fascinating book. Robert Greene, Power. And in this book, it's sort of a meditation, and if you're a political philosopher in the room, it might be half of us, um, he, he, he looks at the work of Machiavelli. And Machiavelli was this political philosopher who sort of spawned this political philosophy that was centred around the notion of power. And this guy popularises some of his ideas by putting them into laws and principles that you can enact if you want to get power in this life. I thought I might just read them for us, just so you can get a sense of how people think about power. And even us too, as followers of Jesus. Here's what he says. Law number one, never outshine the master. You want to have power? Don't outshine the master. Here's how you get power in this world. Law number two, never put too much trust in friends. Learn how to use enemies. You want to get power in this life? Learn how to use enemies. Law number three, you want to get power in this life? Conceal your intentions. Don't be transparent. That's what he would say. Law number four, always say less than necessary. Law number five, so much depends on reputation. Guard it with your life. Do you want power? Conceal. Don't be transparent. Use people. Guard your reputation. Don't invest in your character. That's how you get power. And slowly but surely, according to these laws, you'll find yourself trickling towards the top. In the 19th century, Friedrich Nietzsche, he had this philosophical idea, you'll see it behind me on the screen, of what he calls the ubermensch, the superman. And it's this idea that trickled its way down through history, really from the Romans. And there was this belief, this hope, almost this prophetic word, that history will be tilted towards the good if we just have a man who's strong enough to come and fight evil. Now, what happened after the German Friedrich Nietzsche in the 19th century? It was the German National Socialist regime in the 20th century. And there was one man, a very strong man, a very charismatic man, because of whom history wasn't tilted in the way towards justice or love, beauty, goodness or truth, but actually oppression and evil and death and decay. And it's sort of like history's sounding bell against Nietzsche that actually we don't need a strong man to come and dominate by force. We need something else. Which is why when Jesus responds to the disciples' questions, can we be great? Because we know you're going to be great. You're going to be the strong man. You're going to be the one because of whom history gets tilted towards justice and goodness and beauty and truth. And you're going to do it by force, by overthrowing the Romans. Jesus says, let me just read verses 26 to 28. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you, they must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave. For just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and he gave his life as a ransom for many. What's Jesus saying about greatness? 
He's saying you might find yourself in a position of greatness. You might find yourself in a position of authority. You might find yourself in a position of status and acclaim and wealth and power. Here's what you do. Don't use force. Use love. Don't get. Give. Don't take. Serve. And if you do that, just watch the revolution roll on. Or as the prophet Isaiah says, watch justice and mercy flow like a river. There's a quote from Napoleon, leader of the Empire of France. He said it like this. He says, Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne and I have founded empires, but on what did we rest the creations of our genius upon your force? Jesus Christ founded his empire upon love, and at this hour, millions of men would die for him. What do you do with authority? Serve. What if you do if you find yourself in a position of power? Serve. In the 1970s, this idea of servant leadership took the world by storm as Robert Greenfell, I think his name was, wrote this essay. And he basically said, top-down leadership, traditional leadership is this action in which you're at the top of the pyramid and everyone's down the bottom and what they do serves you. But think about this. Take this idea and put it into principle for like sort of business action. How would this affect the way you lead at work? How would this affect the way you go into the workplace tomorrow? Jesus would say, think of yourself as at the bottom of the pyramid. It's an upside-down pyramid. And everyone above you are those you exist to serve, build up, and help flourish. Why? So that the mission would be successful. So that those you lead would grow. And ultimately, that's so you would have a fulfilling experience of what it means to lead people. This idea can be applied in the business world. But it needs to get applied to our lives more particularly. And I'll finish just with this one point. This is the way of Jesus for the sake of the world. This is the clash of kingdoms. And if we're sitting here asking, man, can I sit in a position of power and authority and acclaim and status and wealth and be a follower of Jesus? The answer is yes. But the primary posture of the Christian is not to go about our day with our position power. It's to be prepared to surrender it. That power and authority, it's not wrong. But the posture of a Christian who's living their daily life before the face of God, ready to be encountered by Jesus, it's simply this. Maybe Jesus does want me to give it up. Why? Because what's important in this world is not the status we get, not the authority we have, not the acclaim we experience. It's the kingdom of God going forward for the sake of Jesus. And so here's what Jesus would say. Use your authority to serve. And be prepared to follow me my word as I instruct you how to live it out. I wanted to unpack the question what to do with ambition, but... I'll, I'll pause that and save it for another day where I've got a bit more time, but I do want to finish just with this little illustration. What do you do? What do you do when you find yourself with power or you've got this heart for ambition or authority? In 1908, William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, he, he was used to sending out like telegrams and all that kind of stuff across the world or being there in person as different parts of his church, the movement that he started, would celebrate Christmas. And so on Christmas Eve in 1908, funds were a bit strained. Finances were low and tight. But he still wanted to encourage all of his followers, those that were a part of the Salvation Army, just across the world. And so he's like, I know, I'll sell a telegram. Send a telegram, sorry. And he's like, I've got to keep it short, because at the time you paid for every single letter that you would send. I don't know the price. Interest rates have gone up since then. And so he constructs this, you know, what would be the central message that I'd want people to experience as they celebrate Christmas? So he sent a telegram, beep, 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 across the world. Everyone received it. One word, 
And here's what it said. Others. Others. When Jesus invites us into service, he totally understands that you can't do it unless you've got a heart for others. Actually central to the orientation of a Christian, the posture of a follower of Jesus is not me, others. Not me and my will, others. Not me and my preferences, others. And you take that idea, you multiply it out ad infinitum, what do you get? You get the cross of Jesus Christ. So here's the fascinating thing. When Jesus was asked the question, can we sit at your table, sit at your right and your left? Jesus says, yeah, you'll drink the same cup, but I don't know who's going to be on my right and my left. Why did he say that? Because in Luke's gospel, and scholars have noted this, in Luke's gospel, you'll know that Jesus wasn't crucified on one cross. There was two crosses beside him. And note what I said before about the narrative of the Gospels and how they picture the king ascending the throne. When every king gets his crown on his head, it's called a coronation. What was Jesus's? It wasn't riding in on a stallion with power and might. He was ascending a hill called Golgotha and taking a crown of thorns on his head. So he'd be crucified on our behalf. And who was on his right and his left? Two criminals. And so when Jesus came into power by being crucified by Rome, He had no idea who was going to be beside him. But that's why he says, you have no idea what you're asking for. Profound, hey? Here's the beauty of that particular story. Jesus didn't just model for us what it looked like for us to serve others and let it cost us. He wasn't just a model. He's also the means by which we, by grace through faith, can come back into relationship with him. If he's just a model, it's way too high a bar. Good luck following the example of Jesus, I would say. It's pretty hard. But what if he has done something because of which we can tap into the same power he had? The answer of the Gospels is he has. He cried on the cross, it's finished. All debts paid, all sin available to be forgiven. People can be now welcomed back into relationship with me, encountering me. And the purpose of this series is just to invite us afresh to encounter Jesus not just the model of a Christian life, but actually the means by which the Christian life starts. Reconciliation comes by God, by grace through faith, not by works because we can't boast because of his gift. And so here's the invitation just as we finish our time. Have you responded to that invitation? Have you said yes to Jesus? Have you said, yes, that's for me. I want to participate in your kingdom. You're not just the model for me, Jesus. You're also the one by which I get reconciled back to God, my Father. So I just want to make space this afternoon for us to say yes to Jesus, whether for the thousandth time or the first time. And to do that, can I just invite us to stand? The worship band will come up. They're already here. And they'll lead us. But can I just invite us? If you've never said yes to God, we're about to witness people saying yes to God through the waters of baptism. What if you did it by prayer right now? And so with every head bowed, every eye closed, I actually just want to give us an invitation to respond. And the reason I invite us to close our eyes is because this is something that you get to do with God right now by the Spirit. It doesn't need to be something that other people witness and other people experience. It's just about you. What's God saying to you? What's God inviting you towards right now? How is God speaking to your heart? And if as I've been speaking this afternoon, you've heard this beautiful message about a king who would go to the craziest lengths to win you, You're like, yes, I want to follow that king. I just invite you to raise your hand this afternoon. 
So if that's you, why don't you just raise your hand with every eye closed, every head bowed. Feel free to just lift that up. Thank you. Thank you. Wonderful. I see two hands raised. And raising your hand, three hands raised. And raising your hand, you're actually just giving me a witness to who I can pray for and who might be praying along with me as we pray this prayer. Another hands up. Thank you. Another hands up. Wonderful. Thank you so much. You can put your hands down. Friends, we're actually all going to pray in this moment. Whether you're a full-time follower of Jesus for a long time or this is something you've just put your hand up to say yes to. And just so we all might be encouraged in the room, I actually want us to use our actual voices. And so I'm going to say a prayer. Sorry, God. Thank you, God. And please, I'm just going to invite us just to speak out, just in unison, just as the church of Jesus, the people of God. And so as I speak, please feel free to repeat after me. Let's pray. God, thank you for what you've done in Jesus. Thank you that he didn't just show me how to love, but he loved me to the end. Sorry for choosing myself over you. And sorry for ignoring you all these days. Please, God, come into my life. Help me follow Jesus. And today, God, I receive your new life. For it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Amen. Well, hey, can we just give those who prayed that prayer a round of applause? The picture of new life in the Bible is always accompanied by celebration, and we've done that now in short form. We're going to do that outside after two songs uh, when people gather to get baptized and reaffirm their faith. But as we step into this next song, can I just encourage us? Man, with the same courage you used to pray that prayer out loud, let's use our boldness and bodies to actually sing praises to our Heavenly Father right now. Let's lift up our song, lift up our voice, and sing praises to the King.